You are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Hi, everybody. Welcome to INCJ's news desk on mental health and cognitive difference in the criminal justice system. I'm John Scott, and this particular item is focusing on the mental health of staff in the system. Now, if you want to comment or join in our conversation, you'll find us on the INCJ website uh, on YouTube or as a podcast at criminaljusticenetwork.net or on Twitter at INTCJ Network. Thank you very much for joining us and listening. Let me introduce today's guest, uh, Professor Joe Clark who is the founder of Petros and a former forensic psychologist working with offenders. But I'll get Joe to tell us about her own work herself. But first of all, welcome to Joe Clark. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Joe, let's start by you telling telling everyone where you are and what you're currently working on. Okay, thank you so much for inviting me. This is really exciting. So I'm currently in York, which is where I live and have been for the last 23 years after a career moving around the prison service, as you mentioned. And my current hot topic is the development of a new program to develop resilience, which we're going to call Thriving um, or How to Thrive at Work and at Life. And the reason it's new is that there have been so many developments sort of psychologically and in neuroscience around the um, impact on people of their work and about how the brain and the body and the mind are all interconnected. So we're developing this new program to bring all the latest evidence together into an intervention that will be based in evidence for staff. Okay, so that's York United Kingdom, because we've got listeners from all over the world. I think there are loads of different places called York, um, but there's only one real York. I have to say that, everybody, because York is my hometown. So um, now let's just hear a little bit more about this uh, new program. Is it designed for just criminal justice settings or all sorts of different settings? It will be designed for everyone because I think all of us couldn't we do with some tips for how to thrive. Life is really tough for so many people everywhere. Um, But obviously my background is in criminal justice and we will have elements of this program that are targeted specifically at actually what we call critical occupation. So this is a term that I came to me when I was doing my research 20 years ago, in fact. But these are occupations where we know that staff are faced with traumatic events and circumstances on probably almost a daily basis. And there is um, very high likelihood of critical impact on psychological well-being. And when we know that we put staff in the front line of trauma, I think we have an additional responsibility to make sure that that impact is minimised, that psychological ill health is prevented in those situations. So obviously criminal justice staff, including prison, probation, police, all come under that umbrella as to people working with victims. Um, It obviously includes health staff, paramedics, staff in hospitals and so on. So so that will be a a primary focus for the programme. Sounds brilliant. We'll look forward to hearing about that when it comes out. But let's start at the beginning. How how did you end up being a psychologist? 
completely by accident. I think most of us fall into things by, I never had an ambition to be a psychologist. I did two A-levels at school back in the day, didn't know I could go to university, suddenly was encouraged at the last minute, didn't know what to do, thought I quite like people, they're interesting. Um, and I applied for universities in things like social work um, and psychology, ended up at Aston University doing a human psychology four-year sandwich degree um, and absolutely loved it. So when I left, I thought, well, I'm not sure what I want to do. I applied for jobs with the jockey club. <laughs> I applied for a job um, doing a, well, a PhD, doing looking at equine behavior because I'm slightly horse mad, always have been. Ended up actually getting a job in the probation service as a, a community service officer, as we were then called. What's quite interesting about that story, though, is that there were advertisements at that time for jobs in prison for psychologists. And I was 23. And I remember really clearly thinking, I am, I'm not ready to work in a prison. I think that environment would be too difficult. And it's now on reflection, very interesting about my awareness, even at that time, about the impact of a job on our well-being. And I knew I wasn't ready. But I actually eventually joined the prison service two years later, age 25, probably still too young, in my opinion, given what we now know about brain development and prefrontal cortex and the fact that most of us aren't fully formed until our mid-20s. Um, but I joined then and, and have not looked back since. And you've stayed with the forensic uh, branch of, psych of psychology. Why, why is that? It's a really interesting question. As I say, it wasn't something that I was aware of being interested in, but I think the fact that offending is such a complex mixture of factors, it isn't just psychology. Obviously, it's about life circumstances, genetics, environment, education, feeling valued, having a purpose, having a job, for example. And I, But I think psychology has a really important part to play in a very complex um, set of factors that result in people offending. And I do think, you know, for, for many of us there, but for the grace of God, really, there are so many of us who could have gone down that path and perhaps didn't for, you know, maybe we, we had a consistent caregiver who just steered us better, or perhaps our life chances improved and we managed to develop good relationships or end up working um, in an environment that really suited us or we had resources available to us that stopped us going down that path. Um, so I just still find it fascinating. Okay, so um, you're in a prison environment. Um, uh, you're working presumably as a, a, a trainee or some description psychologist. Uh, what parts of the job did you love? I think probably like most people in the field, the feeling that you're making a difference. I found it very hard when I started the job to admit to the fact that I'm a proper rescuer. <laughs> I really like to try and rescue people. I've, I've, got, I've tamed that side of me a little bit since then. But I think I just really wanted to feel, feel important and that I could make a difference to people, that I had something to offer. And I think, as most of us understand, um, the offending population is one that is often shunned by the general population and as I say, the circumstances that lead people into that kind of situation are in many occasions not of their own doing. And we have a responsibility as a, as a culture, as a society, to make sure everyone um, is given a chance. So what 
parts of the job did you find hardest or most challenging? I think when I joined um, criminal justice in the 90s, 1990 was my first experience in prison. I think the culture of the prison environment was really, really tough. And women had only just been um, allowed, inverted commas, to work in male prisons. I was one of five women in a male high security prison. And it's uh, on a very personal level, it was very hard to be taken seriously. You know, I was young, female, um, very new to my job, very inexperienced. And I think that was really hard to maintain your integrity, to keep working towards the thing that, that was very important to me and not be derailed by um, interactions and circumstances. Interestingly, often with staff in those days, because I think staff, for, for many of the staff who've been in the job for a long time, it was very new to them. That cultural change of having women in prisons um, made it really, really tough. In addition to that, of course, is the content of the work um, and the trauma and the tragedy that you experience on a daily basis, both with the, the offenders that we were working with, with their histories, with the offences they committed, and knowing the detail of that, which was required as a psychologist, really, to sit and listen to offence accounts, um, to read witness and victim statements, has a phenomenal impact. And I would defy anyone to say that it doesn't. And in fact, I'm glad it still has an impact. You know, I still will hear a story and it will make me want to cry or feel very angry or enraged. And I'm really pleased I still have that reaction. that I haven't been desensitized to that. So you were... In, in some ways, one of a, a group of people pioneering uh, as a woman, but also as a psychologist, taking new ideas, new methods uh, into a, a prison setting. Uh, was there an excitement about uh, challenging uh, existing structures or a bit of fear thrown in? What, what did that pioneering spirit mean? Well, that's really interesting because obviously fear and excitement are in the same element of our nervous system, aren't they? So I think most things probably carry a bit of both, a bit of fear and excitement. I mostly found it really exciting. Um, it was at the very beginning of the introduction of sex offender treatment in the very early 90s. And I have to say, once again, I was asked if I would work on the sex offender treatment program and said no. I was really concerned about the impact it might have. Um, and I managed to resist for about six months and then ended up doing the training and found that I loved the work, much to my surprise. And I think that was, again, this you know, group of offenders who were not well understood, who cause enormous damage by their offending, and you know, have possibly, in some instances, been incredibly damaged themselves. And to be part of a program that aimed to try and improve their chances and reduce the risk of further victimization was an extraordinary privilege in back then in those days. So yes, a bit of both, a bit of fear, but mostly excitement. Going all the way back then, did anyone take any uh, interest in your mental health or supporting you in setting up programs? Um, no, simply the answer would be no. And it's quite interesting because I think nobody at that point really paid attention to the staff who were doing the work it was the focus was very much on the offenders and I think it just didn't occur to people I suppose in a way I'm looking at lots of literature around the police at the moment and the the prevalence of PTSD in the police service and I think just no it's just a job isn't it it's something you do and get on with and no one even considered that it would have an impact and it 
I think it was the mid-90s when um, two colleagues took the prison service to court for psychiatric injury. And it really heightened our awareness of the potential for this work to have an impact. And that's where my interest in resilience really started. Although, as you can see, the seeds were there from very early on about the personal impact for me. Okay. So let's ask the question about being in the prison setting. Um, how did you see mental health issues uh, amongst colleagues and how it affected them? I think people try very, very hard to hide when they're struggling. Um, none of us like to feel that that we're not doing well. And so generally, when we're struggling with our mental health, we feel weak and vulnerable, and therefore we we try and cover that. But there's always, in my view, and this may be my training as a psychologist, but when you ask people what what are the indicators of um, somebody struggling psychologically, we can come up with a massive word cloud of things like being withdrawn, more irritable, um, angry, drinking more, looking disheveled, muttering to yourself, disinterested, turning up late. I mean, there are so many tells when somebody's struggling, which is so fascinating because in lots of our training, we'll ask the question, you can tell if someone has a mental health problem or not. And everyone will very politely say, oh, no, no, no. And then you'll say, let's list all the indicators that, that you or someone else might be struggling. And we have literally hundreds of words um, to describe it. So, but I think you have to be paying attention to notice that. And obviously, as a psychologist, my job is to pay attention to people. And do you think organizations pay attention to those indicators? Or do they just have a blind eye to things that are affecting their staff's mental health? Um, I don't think. When we talk about organizations, of course, we've got to recognize that we're talking about individuals. We're talking about managers and senior leaders. My answer is no, I don't think they do, but I think they don't because they don't know what to do about it. It feels a bit scary. And if somebody is struggling with their mental health and you try and approach them, you know, if they are feeling vulnerable and they don't want to feel weak, the chances are they're going to snap at you and tell you to mind your own business or they're going to say everything's fine. Um, and then you think, well, now what do I do? And people feel paralyzed by that. So I think, organ and I think also organizations, um, or leaders in organizations often don't really understand what's underpinning it. So they'll throw a solution at what they think is the problem without really understanding what the problem is. And then the solutions don't work. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy is, well, there's nothing I can do, which is actually not the case. But that's what my job is now, is to advise and support organizations to really understand how to respond well. And do you think, do you think organizations um, in management speak try to get indicators or proxy indicators like, um, for example, levels of uh, sick leave and say, uh, uh, that might be an indicator of uh, stress in the workplace, for example. Uh, are, are they helpful indicators or can they be illusory as well? Um, I think they probably are helpful indicators because we know when we improve people's psychological well-being, we improve their ability to adapt to adversity then things like sickness absence goes down, retention gets better. In the criminal justice field, we have evidence that people are less likely to get assaulted if they're properly trained to look after themselves. So I think they are useful indicators. But what what I've noticed happening organisationally, not just in criminal justice, is that there's such a, a emphasis on well-being. And people think well-being is things like 
lunchtime yoga and having fresh fruit and maybe having more benefits. And yet, if you ask people what is most important to them at work and what would ensure their loyalty, it's usually being seen, being heard, being understood as an individual. It's about being valued. It's not about money. It's not about access to healthcare. Those things are nice. They're lovely to have, but they won't ensure somebody's commitment to the organization. It's not about money. It's about being valued, being seen. And, and respected. Yes. Now, I introduced you as a professor. Mm. And that obviously means that at some stage you switched to the world of the academic. So I'd quite like to ask um, what it was like switching to a, a university. And was that a different challenge? It was a fascinating transition. So one of the things that criminal justice staff listening to this will really understand is that in criminal justice, your, your very survival, I think, depends on your ability to be part of a team um, and usually a multidisciplinary team. And, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot of respect for what everyone can offer in in a criminal justice setting, going back right to the beginning about why people offend. You know, there are so many reasons that there's so many of us specializing in areas that work together to try and improve outcomes for people. And yet in academia, your success is really based on your your ability to win grants, to publish papers, to attract students. And that's a very solitary and competitive role to be in. So it was incredibly different. There was a really sharp contrast. Um, so, and, and I'm a team player, so I, I found that quite a difficult transition. Absolutely loved the small forensic team that I worked with. Absolutely brilliant. The students were amazing. Um, but we were isolated in a department where, where academics are required to keep their focus very much on what they're doing and not have that wider overview. So that was a, an extraordinary challenge and, and I'm not sure one that I met particularly well. Well, and the stresses of academic work are very, very different to the stresses of being in the criminal justice system. There is a huge demand on um, results, productivity, marking, workloads. Um, I think one of the, I, again, I joined academia at a time when they were aimed at becoming businesses. And I think it's very hard for academics to run a business. It's not what we do. You know, as an academic, you're not a business person, you're an academic. So I think that transition in academia has been really hard for people. And I undoubtedly, universities now are business units. It's really, really changed. And I was sort of came in in the midst of that. Okay. We have mentioned the word resilience and actually your Thrive program is going to be right at the heart of that. Why have you ended up with resilience being your specialist field? I think when my colleagues took the prison service to, to court, um, and although it took five years for that to be resolved, I, I was doing the same work as them. There are a bunch of us all doing the same work. And I was really aware that if it was just the work, just the content of the work and the nature of the work, then presumably we should all be impacted in the same way. My own experience is that there were times when I was more impacted negatively than others, and there were times when I was impacted really positively by the work. So I just became really, really curious about the differences and how is it 
that some people get impacted and not others, and some people are impacted at various times and not at other times, there must be more at play than simply the content of the work, which is what most people would assume. You know, working with sex offenders is a tough, tough job. Um, you have to do a lot of listening, a lot of making sense, a lot of processing, um, often working with people who are very scared, potentially dangerous sometimes. You know, there's so many things that you have to manage psychologically. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what these issues were? And so I came up to York from Brixton Prison, where I'd been managing a unit for, for lifers convicted of offences that may have had a sexual element. I moved from there, came up to York, and my question was, what's the psychosocial impact on prison staff of working therapeutically with offenders? And how do we understand the differences that will we can then use to help keep people well and safe if we know there are areas that might make people vulnerable to negative impact? So, and that's been my my career ever since. And why do you think the mental health of staff is so important in the criminal justice system? If we're not well, psychologically well, mentally well, in our roles, it's incredibly hard to support people who themselves will be struggling. Um, we know that the prevalence of mental Ill health amongst prisoners is ridiculously high. I'm still not sure, actually, whether they people will come into prison mentally unwell or whether the prison environment itself exacerbates that problem, which I'm sure it does. I can't see how it couldn't. And then that must be the same for staff as well, you know, that we work in these very difficult environments. We know from the research, one of the findings was the physical work environment is incredibly important to well-being. Um, and that will be the same for prisoners and staff. And I'm talking prisoners here. I realise we're talking criminal justice more widely. So we've got to bear in mind, you know, people who are working in the community as well, not not just in prisons. Um, but we know that they're very difficult environments to work in. And therefore, if we ourselves are not psychologically healthy, we're in no position to support the people who need us. So it's essential that we stay well. It's also, and you know, to quote Brené Brown, who I'm a huge admirer of, you know, she would say, it's very difficult to help and support other people if you can't accept help and support yourself. Um, and so therefore it becomes important for staff to make sure they accept the help and support they need to stay well. What could organisations do to check their staff's mental health? Um, how long have you got, John? <laughs> well, let, let's say the first two minutes of your answer. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say make sure that first and second line managers are properly trained and supported in understanding psychological well-being in order that they can um, support frontline staff I think middle managers have a very difficult deal. Only about 20% of any organization trains their managers in actually how to look after people. They'll train you in the sickness procedure and the staff appraisal process and budgeting, but they tend not to train us in what does it actually mean to manage a person. And therefore, when people do become or begin to struggle, become unwell at work, they don't want to talk to their manager about it because they don't think their manager's equipped to respond well, which they probably aren't through no fault of their own. This is no criticism. So I think organisations really need to focus their resources on upskilling managers to actually really understand what helps people thrive, what helps them, what motivates them, 
what their individual needs are, what individual differences are. You can't treat everybody the same. They're not the same. Um, and if we had a really well-skilled, empowered layer of management with a very supportive senior leadership, um, we would be in a much better position to help everybody thrive. Mm -hmm. The other side of this uh, coin, though, is that uh, individuals have got to take responsibility for their own uh, mental health and, uh, uh, and the way they um, manage their own stresses. Uh, what could individuals do to, to, to protect their own well-being? Well, that's, another, that's, a, that's another two-minute answer, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's another day's worth of training. Um, <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. And I think one of the things organizationally that happens is that people will say, I work in a really toxic culture. And my response to that is, well, who's the culture in your organization? Where does it come from? And the culture is the individuals. The culture is us. You know, we make up the culture in our organization. So, for example, if we are continually asked to take on more and more work and we say yes because we don't know how to say no, um, and then we we collapse under the strain of that and go off sick for a long time and then that work is passed on to other people. Harsh as this sounds, we are actually contributing to the toxicity of the culture because we are the culture. I, I recognise that senior leadership have a very, really important part to play in, in instilling a culture in an organisation, but we're still part of it. So, and I think sometimes we lose our agency when we join a big organisation because we think somehow it's up to them. And when we on our training, when we talk about duty of care, of course, the organization has a duty of care to you. Um, it's enshrined in law. So it's very, very clear. And the health and safety executive have, have described it really clearly what the organizations need to do. But we also have a duty of care to our organization. You know, we sign a contract, we agree to come to work fit for purpose, um, to work so many hours to, to meet our targets and that kind of thing. And and we need to make sure, a bit like we make sure our car is fit to run, we need to make sure that we are fit to run as well. Um, and then, of course, and that for me is the third duty of care, which is our duty of care to ourselves. You know, so if we recognize that we are not sleeping well, that we're feeling more irritable, that we're withdrawing from people, that we're not looking after ourselves, it can be hard to notice yourself. Often it will be somebody else who says, are you all right? You know, you don't seem yourself. Um but those are indicators, a bit like when a warning light comes up on your dashboard. It's like, oh, hang on a minute, I need to pay attention to that. Because if I keep running with that warning light on, eventually something big's going to go wrong and it's going to be much harder to fix. So, you know, in my ideal Pollyanna world, everyone would have the skills to look after their psychological well-being in the same way that perhaps we do with our physical health. I can use dentistry as a really good example. I somehow have ended up doing lots of work with dentists lately. Um, I know. And then, um, you know, when, when we learn very early on, don't we brush your teeth twice a day, floss, mouthwash, go for checkups. If we could apply some straightforward, simple strategies like that to our psychological health, uh, we would be so much better off, so much better off. Well, okay. When we were talking about doing this, this session up for the news desk, mm. Joe, you suggested, uh, oh, people quite often find it helpful if, if you are, have real life questions put to you from mm. that come from staff. Mm. So we've we've got a few questions here for you that we can we can put to you, uh, and just to use these as a starter so that you can get some advice out there. Okay, so uh, here's one: 
Uh, there's no one at work I feel I can trust with my worries. Have you any advice? A couple of things, actually. So there are individual differences in how easy we find it to disclose stuff. Some people find it really easy and will find somebody, even if it's not somebody at work, that they can talk to. Other people really struggle. Um, so if you are somebody who finds speaking to another person, whether or not they're in work or outside of work, um, writing is fabulous. It was very interesting just before we started this recording, we were chatting, weren't we, about artificial intelligence and talking about how these online um, help programs, whatever they are, are, are really useful for people because when they're asked a question online, they're more likely to answer because there's not that fear of being judged or or frowned upon or whatever. So when we write things, we lose that element of fear of being judged, of fear of disclosing. So writing is a fabulous way. There is actually there's a chap called James Pennybaker who's really pioneered therapeutic writing and he recommends um, writing for about 10 or 15 minutes, three or four days in a row about whatever's on your mind. No, um, no censoring, no worry about grammar or spelling because no one else is going to see it. You may get upset, it may make you cry, but so does watching sad films. That's okay. Crying is normal. Sometimes I'm very, very cathartic. Um, but if you get too distressed, stop writing. Um, and then it's up to you what you do with your writing. You can have that kind of cathartic burning of it or chopping it up in the shredder, or you can keep it for later analysis. Um, but writing is, it's, it's the same sense of offloading that other people get from talking. If the issue is at work and there's no one at work to talk about, um, talk to, sorry, or you don't trust anyone to talk to, it's worth perhaps just formulating, reflecting with someone else about how you might raise that issue at work. And there are there are some useful strategies and things that can be done. I would always recommend finding a mentor or a coach to help be a sounding board. You know, we're, we're social animals, us human beings. We do need each other. Um, so find someone separate to help you if you need to take something back into the workplace. Right. N another one, you actually already mentioned this. Uh, someone said, I'm finding it difficult to sleep, to switch off. What what should I do? Yeah. Um, read anything by a lovely author called Narina Ramlakhan. She's written two books, or uh, well, three books, actually. Fast Asleep, Wide Awake. Um, and I can't remember the, the title of the other one as I sit here thinking, but it's, it's a really good title. It'll come to me. And The Little Book of Sleep is another of hers. But more instantly, the reason usually that we can't sleep is that our, we lie down, where head hits the pillow, everything's still and quiet, and those voices in our head get going about all the things you haven't done, all the things you do to do, all the worries and concerns of the world. Um, our minds are proper mischief makers. So if that happens to you, a um, couple of things you can try. First of all, think, right, okay, instead of trying to get to sleep, I'm going to go, I'm going to stay awake. Because what that does is take the pressure off. So lying in bed with your mind fizzing is a little bit like sitting at some traffic lights with your handbrake on and the car in neutral and your foot flat down on the accelerator. So all you're doing is flooding your body with fuel, which of course makes it jittery and want to get up. Um, so telling yourself, right, well, I'm going to stay awake because I know I can do that. It takes all the pressure off. It's like easing your foot off the accelerator. Um, do something boring like the ironing or the vacuuming if you're not going to wake anyone up, but, but do something that 
that means your mind isn't just going to be racing. There are lots of techniques and strategies for managing that racing mind. Obviously, we don't have time to go through them today. Um, but so an instant thing is to to wait, to stay awake, to wake up. Uh, writing is another thing that can be really helpful. And then there are lots and lots of recommendations in the sleep literature about sleep hygiene, about things that you can do building up to sleep. But again, I suppose in a way that puts a bit of pressure on. And if when you get to bed, you're like, I must sleep, I must sleep because I've, you know, only going to have five hours and I'm going to be exhausted tomorrow. That's revving the engine. So you could also work at changing that narrative and think, well, okay, I'm going to be tired for a day or two, but, you know, at some point I'll catch up, which again, just eases the pressure. Yeah, being being gentle on yourself might Very uh, gentle. Yes. Might, might might be part of it. Okay, another another one. Uh, I'm frightened to go to my doctor um, because I, because I do not want my work record to reflect badly on me. So I'm putting off addressing how I'm handling stress at work. Well, I had a lovely expression recently, which is, if you don't make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. So putting it off is likely to result in a much bigger problem later down the line. And I'm, I'm not actually sure now of the number of people in the UK, for example, who are on medication to support their mental well-being. Um, but, but I can guarantee that if you go to the doctor and they suggest antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, you are not going to be alone. And if employers start discriminating based on people who are on medication or not, they're not going to have anyone working for them. So, um, you know, bite the bullet, go and speak to your GP. I don't know that medication is always the answer. I, I think in some cases it most definitely is. But what medication does, of course, is manage the symptoms rather than the underlying cause so if you can find a way, maybe through finding a private therapist or a, a therapist through a work-related program or the employee assistance program or a really good friend, um, we know that talking works and it works because it soothes our nervous system. It soothes our amygdala. It's really, really helpful. And I would always recommend talk therapy. Find the right person. Find the person that you trust who makes you feel seen and heard and valued. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much liking this idea. It's the whole person. Yeah. You know, don't don't label it sickness. No. Think about the whole person. So yeah. where where taking walks or looking after your physical health or yes. making sure you're spending time with your kids or whatever. Yeah. It's, think about the whole person, which yeah. seems to be really important. Yeah. But but that being frightened to go to the doctor isn't great, is it? So, well, it isn't when you put things off. Um, I could tell some some really sad stories of people around me who've who've eventually come for support when they've hit rock bottom and they are physically very unwell yeah and, and that's so uh, sad and putting you know, you don't need to hit rock bottom you know no, you absolutely don't <laughs> yeah. there's so much we can do that's preventative yeah, a little yeah. bit like the dentistry analogy you know there point. are there are things that we can do to ensure that we minimize the risk of psychological ill health um but, but then things when we notice early on, if things are going a bit awry, that we do something quickly so that we don't end up really, really poorly. Here's a good one, Joe. You'll like this. Well, uh, as, as a former senior manager, I like <laughs> this. Uh, management is distant. Mm. And the work just keeps on coming because of high vacancies. Yeah. 
I feel I have to keep a low profile about not coping with the pressure, but I am looking for another job. In a way, this question brings everything together that we've been talking about. So it's to do with the organizational culture, it's to do with fear of disclosure, it's to do with psychological well-being. If we do nothing um, when we are feeling this way at work, then all that's going to happen is nothing will change. It'll just get worse and worse. Um, so these these can be really difficult conversations to have, but you know, please bear in mind, I suspect the manager is feeling the same kind of pressure as you are. I think everybody will be feeling it. And we have to be really realistic about what can be achieved with the resources we've got. You know, if your car runs out of petrol, it doesn't keep running and saying, oh, I'll keep trying, I'll keep trying, it just stops. You know, you run out of fuel. So if there are no resources to do a piece of work, then there are no resources. And those are there are some tough decisions to be made. Um, but I think it's going to be really important to find a way of having a discussion about what you can achieve and what you can realistically do. And sometimes you know, a, a quick story, actually, I think this is worth mentioning because it really aligns to this. It's an academia story rather than a prison service one. But a, a friend of mine who's a professor, recently promoted professor, was staying at my house because um, her new job was quite close to me. She turned up at my house, came in, she looked terrible, you know, do you know someone struggling? Yes, you do. She looked pale and drawn and she was a bit jittery. And I said, are you all right? And she burst into tears and she said, no, I'm not. So I said, well, what's happened? And she said, well, I've just been asked to take on 50 new supervisees and three more dissertation students. And I looked at her and I said, what did you say? And she said, well, I said, yes. <laughs> I said, why? Because look at what's happened to you in, in saying yes to that. What stopped you saying no? I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to cause anyone any more pressure. And I'm like, but it's, it's okay for you to feel like that, but not okay if you think you're responsible for other people feeling like that. So what we did was talk through how to say no, because she finds it really hard and lots of people find it really hard. So little tip, if you're asked to do some more work and you're like, <gasps> I was going to swear then, <laughs> I can't possibly take on any more work. Why are they asking me? Give, give yourself a break and just say, can you give me a few hours or a day or two just to think about how I might fit that in with my current workload. So you're not actually saying no, but it gives you some breathing space. Um, and then stop and think about what's realistic. Because if you take on this piece of work, if you are going to end up crying, feeling overwhelmed, like you want to leave, then it is no help to anybody. In the ideal world, your manager would know what you've got on and would know what you're capable of taking on in addition, but they don't always, um, sadly. I think there's some really excellent managers who keep on top of all of that. And there are other managers that themselves feel very overwhelmed. But I think your duty of care to yourself is to make sure your manager knows. And so you can go back and say, okay, I could take that on, but it means that this is going to get left. Is that okay? Good advice. Right. Last question. Uh, I'm a senior. I'm carefully not saying it, which organization this is in and find I'm being pulled in every which direction. Do you have any advice about how to cope with competing demands? We have a lovely expression that we use, and I stole it from somebody and I can't remember who, so this is probably plagiarism, but it's an expression and it's a win. What's important now? And it's about how do you focus and give your attention 
to what right now is the most important thing that needs doing and not let your attention be constantly pulled by a million different demands at once. It is a bit of a skill and it takes a little bit of practice, but it's really about how do I manage my mind in the here and now? That does not override the fact that nearly everybody I've ever spoken to has got too much to do. Um, and lots of people find lists really helpful and, you know, just list writing and prioritizing, but that often doesn't stop our attention for going, oh, well, I've, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. And they want me now. And this is what's going on at, over there at the moment. And how do I just focus? So win, what's important now is a really helpful little mantra and mantras can be life-saving um, to help you just focus on this. So if what's important now is that individual who is really struggling with their work, then that's what's important and everything else goes out the window. If what's important is meeting that deadline, then that's what's important. But the same advice, if you've got too many competing demands and it's resulting in you feeling that you're going to have to give up, then something has to give because we will, we do become unwell if we keep trying. We have to find a way of organizing our, our minds, our time, ourselves, the resources that we've got around us. And I know people are going to say, I haven't got time to do that. But remember, if you don't make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. Well, we are drawing to a close. That seems to have gone incredibly quickly. Um, I'm just going to uh, ask you to end by seeing if you have any handy hints for criminal justice staff out there, uh, quick ways that they can look after their own mental health. <laughs> I love that you leave me two minutes at the end for that, John. Actually, I've got lots of handy hints, um, but probably not time to go through them all now. I'll, I'll mention a couple, but we have on um, the Petros website, which is petros.org.uk, we've got lots of blogs. And one of those blogs is top tips for looking after yourself. And there are tips for working at home and there are tips for dealing with criticism. They're all in separate blogs, which please feel free, download them. They're absolutely free. And we also have a, a ebook on the front page called Wellbeing at Work, which is about how to develop a wellbeing strategy. Absolutely free. Please help yourself to it. So I hope that um, negates the fact I'm not going to be able to say terribly much in the time we've got left. I think the what's important now is useful to everybody, not just senior leaders. And it's just helping focusing our minds so it doesn't run off and make mischief. That's really important. We've already mentioned and all the advice is out there anyway about recognizing the inextricable link between mind and body. So look after yourself physically. Um, make sure and make a commitment to getting out in sunlight for good. You know, we, we, most of us are lacking vitamin D. It's made in the sunlight. If you can't get out in sunlight, if you work in a prison, like in the middle of winter and you arrive in the dark and leave in the dark, take vitamin D. Um, it's really good for you. Check medically if there are any reasons why you shouldn't. Um, <clears throat> find what works for you that's emotionally nourishing for you and keep doing it. And it might be that it's crocheting or dinner with friends or regular cinema or for me, riding my horse. Do what is emotionally nourishing for you. There's some fantastic tips on managing your energy by um, a chap called Jim Lower, L-O-E-H-R, and Tony Schwartz. It's called On Form. And they talk about managing your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual energy. And I personally have um, used that framework daily, all the time. It's just part of a way of being that helps me ensure that I 
got all the resources I need to keep my psychological balance. I really do practice what I preach. Um, I, I don't sit and talk about this and then don't do any of it. I do pay attention to it. But do you know what? Once these become habits, they don't take time. People say, oh, I haven't got time to look after myself. Of course you have, because if you don't, you're in trouble. So try, if you can, to formulate little habits and rituals that are designed to give you the energy you need to face the adversity that we have in critical occupations, to look after yourself, to look after your clients, to look after your colleagues. And if we all did that, and we all had that focus and that purpose, we would all be so, so much better off. We can't do it on our own. Thank you. Really, really good. Um, more than handy hints. Good life advice. So we're going to sign off there. Thank you very much, Joe, for uh, joining us today. And those of you who are listening, please remember you can join us for other parts of the News Desk event on mental health projects around the world. And there are reference materials online on the INCJ website. Joe's already mentioned Petros and we'll provide links for you to follow up there. Please stay, stay safe and I hope you can join us next time. Goodbye and thank you. Our podcasts are available with your normal provider through iTunes or Google under INCJ Podcasts. You have been listening to the INCJ Podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.